Today's reading is from the book of Ruth, chapter 3, verse 1 to 5, and chapter 4, verse 13 to 17. It can be found on page 247 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he made love to her. The Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a family guardian. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The word of the Lord. Actually, and these clipboards are going to be coming around during the message. Um, You can wait till after my prayer to pass them around. But if the sermon has any slow spots, you know, you can... You can read that and fill it out, you know, show your interest in kids' ministry. Let me, let me open with prayer. Our God of grace, as we come into this space, um, we're aware that we're more broken and more of a mess than we care to admit. Each of us, uh, although we would wish, although we would hope that we could climb our way to you, we find over and over that we can't. Or perhaps you have showed us anew this week that we cannot. And the story of your scripture says, no matter who we are, no matter where we come from, no matter what our story is, that even though we're more of a mess than we care to admit, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. Simultaneously, a mess and beloved, welcomed into your family to be one of your children. And so we sit here this morning and we hope that that is true, and we hope that we can find a way to believe it. Even if we come uh, really not believing much of what Christians believe, or if we come embracing it fully, maybe we come filled with uh, new doubts this morning, or maybe we come filled with new faith because a prayer has been answered, or events have turned in such a way that we see your face and your hand in our life. Perhaps we're just deeply struggling today. We don't even know how to articulate the needs, but they are great. Or perhaps we're going through the cycles of grief and we're at a low point again from old losses or new ones, wherever we come from, God. May it be now that we hear not the voice of some preacher, but that we hear your voice spoken through mysterious ways right into our hearts in ways that we need to hear it and we need to know about your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
We have, you know, we also have on that contact card that I was just talking about, we have the question of the week. So you can fill out the question this week, um, and then that might get talked about next week. The question um, that you guys filled out last week was, who has to work the hardest? Who has to work the hardest? So a few different answers on here. Somebody said, James Frizee, have you seen that beautiful beard? I'm just reading what someone wrote. That's what it says. Um, inside joke there, perhaps. All right, so someone else says moms. Moms have to work the hardest. Um, someone says those who, those who don't do it correctly the first time. Someone said those who feel unappreciated. And coal miners have it the hardest, have to work the hardest. Um, this story that we just, we just got a glimpse of, and really we're talking, we're going to kind of take this as the whole story of the book of Ruth, which is a three-chapter book in the Old Testament, or four-chapter. Um, we just got a couple glimpses, and they kind of, we kind of mashed them together into one reading, and so there's a lot there that you didn't catch, but Ruth and Naomi are the types of people that you look out into your world today and you'd say, wow, I don't know how they're going to make it. Um, they have to work the hardest for sure. They're in a situation where, um, uh, you know, I hope I never have to be there. You know, you might have a thought like that. Or, or you might be like, I remember when I was in a situation like that. Or I'm in a situation like that right now. It's just, in order to get underneath this, really... This would be quicker than me explaining it. It's just to read the first five verses of the book of Ruth. So that's what I'll do. It's really concise, and it sets the stage for the whole drama of what's going on. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malone and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malone and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, if you're listening to this story in the ancient world, you would be on the absolute edge of your seats. Because these deaths that have happened in this family are not viewed through the lens of romance and you complete me and so now I'm sad because of this death. These these are processed and thought of purely through the lens in this story of economics. And so the ancient reader or listener, as they're hearing the story, would have thought, well, okay, Naomi's husband dies, but she'll be fine. I mean, it's, she'll have an uphill climb, things are going to get tough, but... Um, she'll be fine because she has lined up right here these two life insurance policies of her two sons. Because we're talking about an economy that runs through the male wage earner of the household. So she'll be fine. Because even if one of them dies, she's still got that second insurance policy there. Her son, she can live underneath 
his wage earning capacity under, his, under the roof of his house, but then the nightmare scenario plays out. And they both, both sons die. And so now this is a very different story. Now, and this is why you can see how quickly that introduction happens and just all the details. There's, there's no extra wasted word there that's just built up just to that point where, whoa, this woman, these, these women are doomed. Hopeless. And so what transpires is that Naomi decides to head back to her homeland of Judah. And she urges, she pleads with Orpah and Ruth to go to their homeland, to go to, be, to, to live under the roof of their parents, and because they're young. They can remarry. They can, you know, they have hope economically. They'll be okay. Don't follow me off to my homeland where there's no hope. You'll just be an added economic liability, and we'll both struggle together. Do what's wise. Go make a life for yourself. She urges them. And Ruth refuses. In fact, she makes a sort of vow that's similar to like a wedding vow. She, 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 she just vows her allegiance. She pledges herself to Naomi and to Naomi's land and Naomi's people and Naomi's God will be her God. And so she fixes herself into Naomi's life. And so they wander their way back to the land of Naomi's family, the land of the God of Israel, to maybe eke out a living as beggars, basically. But in the land of the God of Israel, there's, a, there's just this strange, small, odd hope. It's a long shot, but there's this strange tradition, this law of sorts in the land of the God of Israel. And it, and it goes by, depending on your translation, it's, it's called in different places in the Bible, kinsman redeemer or family guardian. That's the, what you saw on the screen. It talked about Boaz being the family guardian. What's going on there? Well, in the land of Israel, there's this strange hope, this, this odd thing that didn't really exist anywhere else. It's where in a variety of situations, this law would apply to someone who's already experienced a great injustice or tragedy. And in order to sort of um, hedge off the tragedy, to avoid the utter destitution and poverty to um, multiply and get worse, a relative, a relative would become a sort of substitute and stand in for example the deceased spouse and stand in in such a way that everybody knew they were taking an economic loss but this is the nature of the God of Israel is that things are set up this way to protect the one who's destitute and impoverished so this relative is a stand in to take a loss as a sort of a patch to graft in, to pick up, as, as it were, a dead branch off of the ground that's withering and seems to have no hope, and to attach it back to the vine to bring new life. Family guardian, kinsman redeemer, so that the livelihood could be restored to those who were otherwise doomed and overlooked. 
That's what this story is all about. And so by the end of the story, with um, really some cunning on behalf of Naomi, and you'll, you'll probably just want to read the whole story, it, you know, it'll take you about 10 or 15 minutes to read through it, to catch some of the details of this, Boaz, this relative, becomes the family guardian of Ruth and Naomi. And by the end of the story, Ruth bears a son through him. And so this son now can carry on the family line. But the son is talked about in the very last part, the very last few verses, as Naomi's son, even. And that's, that's kind of strange. The family, the, the story takes a, an odd kind of law that's already there and, and kind of bends it a little bit. The family guardian law should have applied to Naomi, but she's, she's too old to bear children anymore. And Ruth, there's kind of a problem with Ruth because she's a, a foreigner. She's a Moabite. So it gets kind of unlikely that this would happen. That not only is Naomi, the Israelite, skipped over to, to move on to, then it's Ruth, who's a Moabite, that now Israel's laws are applying to this Moabite. And then when the child is born, the third, really the third strange oddity is that now the child is talked about as Naomi's, not Ruth's. There's a law in place. I talked about it that way. It's the family guardian law, and yet there's a tremendous flexibility going on in the story that kind of bends and twists and plays with your mind a little bit about how a law should work. Isn't it firm and fixed? And what we have and what we see and what's coming out of this, if we're willing to open up our minds a little bit and pay attention to it, is that we have a God being displayed. We have God's ways being displayed here, a God who's, who delights not in this rigidness of a strict and cold righteousness, but a God who, wherever the overlooked are found, wherever the overlooked are found, the miserable, the struggling, the destitute, wherever they are found, through whatever unlikely, unexpected, unjust levels of compassion, this God seeks to restore, to find a way, to bend things in that direction of the, the restoration of the overlooked. And that's the God of Naomi's land. That's the God of Israel. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God of the Christian. And so being a Christian, as we started last week, we, we started a three-part series really on, we're calling it God's sweet spot, part one, part two, and part three. And part one last week was just how Psalm 146 lays out all these categories of people that God lifts up. And they're all the overlooked. And this week, we see a great, perfect example of it. Next week, we'll see another one from the Old Testament. And so as a Christian, it means you start to, you start to suspect that when you see, when you look at the Ruths and Naomi's of the world, when you look at them, you begin to wonder and, and suspect that there's a story that God is writing through these people. You say, what's, what's happening there? What's God doing there? Maybe there's something happening here. We're, 
I might suspect that God is actually going to be more obviously present there than these other glamorous places where things are working swimmingly and things are going great and there's economic success and there's this way to make more money and there's this person who made it. God seems to have his eyes and his activity over here. And so this is a story really that asks us to think about who is God and where is God at work. Let me just bring out one other aspect of this story. If we zoom out, we zoom out of the book of Ruth, and we see the context. The very first phrase tells us this, and it's, it's loaded with meaning. In the days when the judges ruled. And if you read about that, and you know about that part of the Bible, and the book right before this one called Judges, the refrain is, in this time of the judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no one to lead them. There was no one to lead them. Now, ancient readers, ancient Israelites, reading the, uh, and listening to the, the book of Ruth read, they knew that they knew already about the coming of David. No one was ever listening to this story, you know, before the era of David. They were listening to this story after David had already appeared. King David, the man after God's own heart, the one that was held up throughout the Old Testament. And Judges then, as they also read the book of Judges, Judges is like this kind of, this sort of, um, this, this, this time that's this preparation or this, this uncertainty. It's almost like... Um, there, there's something's going to happen, but we don't know what. We know a great leader is coming, but there's this time in which we don't. You know, everyone's kind of doing what they want. There's these judges, and some of them seem to be pretty good. Some of them, eh, things go well for a while. Other times, not. But we're itching, and we're waiting, and we're. It's like the book of Judges is pregnant for the t moment for the king to be born, for David to arrive. That's part of the backdrop of when we have that simple phrase at the beginning of the book of Luke, is that David is coming, but really the question becomes, how? How is this David going to come? What's going to lead to finally having this one David who we've all heard about? And so another delightful layer to this story, filled with God's humorous irony, is that the book of Ruth ends with a genealogy. And if if you're looking at the Bible from your seats, then it's, it titles it, The Genealogy of David. And there, right in it, is Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. How do we get to Jesus? <laughs> we get to Jesus through the widows and the foreigners, and the Moabite wife. Become, they become front and center in God's story of patching things together, a broken world that needs restoration. So you find in the Gospel of Matthew, right at the beginning there's a genealogy, and what do you know, but there it is. We talked last week, we mentioned Rahab, that Canaanite foreigner woman who was a prostitute. So she was a foreigner, and she was unclean in the sight of God and with the people of God, and she's enfolded into the people of God. Strange stories of the way God works. And there in the book of, there in the book of Gospel of Matthew, there it is, but you see both those names put real close together there. You have 
Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obad, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And before that, you have Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. So not only is this the genealogy of David, not only is this answering some of the question of how is God going to piece things together to bring about the great patching and restoration of the people of Israel through David, but it also answers the question of how do we get to Jesus? And it's through people like this. It's through these kinds of stories front and center. And of course, then what happens when we get to Jesus? What happens when we get to Jesus, this one who has come about through the genealogies of the most unexpected people? What happens with all of these genealogies? Well, they are now no more. When you get into the New Testament, the genealogies stop with Jesus. Because now, as you learn if you read your Bible well, now people of all nations become, I put it in quotes, children of Abraham. And so the use of these genealogies is no longer, um, they're no longer needed. Jesus, the son of David, would be the stand-in for those unable to redeem themselves. He would be the kinsman redeemer, the family guardian who takes a loss to become the stand-in for everyone. All places, all ethnicities, all backgrounds. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 3, he said, I could make children of Abraham out of these stones. And that's indeed why the genealogies after that stop. I don't trace my genealogy back somehow and say, see, I'm a legitimate child of Jesus. I just, you know, it's, it's just Jesus. Through the cross, through his work, he becomes the stand-in, and now everyone is grafted in who will come. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me, and you will bear much fruit. And so everyone has that offer before us, to be engrafted, to be brought in. And in fact, it's a humbling thing, right? It's easy to grab hold of the story of Ruth and Naomi if you are in an economically difficult place. Because there is a strong message that says God sees you, and even if others are overlooking you, God is not overlooking you right now. But there's also the sobering message and humbling message for everyone that says, in order to be reconnected with God through Jesus, you must humble yourself and see that you are but a dead and withering branch on the ground, and you need to be picked up, and you can't be your own family guardian. Most of us are trying. I mean, that's a weird phrase. You know, if I made you all say, I am my own family guardian, you know, or something weird like that. I'm not going to make you say that. Sometimes I make you say weird things. But that's basically what we're doing. We're getting up in the morning, and we're saying, I today will be my own family guardian. I'll be my own kinsman redeemer. I will patch myself Back to God. And this is the message of the Bible over and over and over. No. You might as well go find another place, another philosophy, another to-do list, another how-to book. Don't be here. Don't be at this table. Don't be in this book if that's your approach. Because these things will only lead you back over and over to say, every morning you wake up and you say, there but by the grace of God. My soul 
I may, maybe, maybe you're lucky enough to experience economic um, stability, but your soul is not stable. Your soul is weak. Your soul is destitute and doomed. Your heart is broken. And each of us live with that and see it in different ways. And every day, this book and this table, and Jesus says to you, just let go and let me pick you up. You're not going to climb your way out of this one. The identity of the Christian is, I am a cut-off branch, and I have been engrafted back in. I'm right there with Naomi and Ruth and the overlooked of the world. There's also a message for us to hear that wherever the world stands broken, lost, sorrowful, economically hopeless, that is God's terrain. And that is the terrain of the church as well. Not only is it our spiritual identity, but it is a call. It is a call on us to see and not overlook the needs around us. Not overlook the ones around us others might overlook. And to come in and take a loss in order to stand in for others. Let's pray. Our God of grace. It always amazes me the, the strange and odd corners of the Old Testament where we can find Jesus lurking amidst phrases like kinsman redeemer and amidst genealogies. And there, but there you are in your salvation for us, in your grace, so complete and so full and so constant. Nothing we can do will scare your grace away for our entire lives. It's going to be here over and over ready for us. Would you help us accept it? And would you help us to open our eyes to all those that you never stopped seeing? But we, perhaps, in our anxiety to patch our own lives together and to be our own family guardians, we've overlooked many. Help us to see how you see. In Jesus' name.